We're in John 17, verses 4 and 5. We're still in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We're, in some ways, we're just getting started. We're still looking at Jesus' uh, prayer for himself, which is the first five verses here. If you open up to John 17, let's read verses 4 and 5 together. Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. This is our text this morning. As I said, Jesus is almost done praying for himself. This is not a long prayer. If you read through it, it takes maybe a minute and a half to say all of these words. That's about the length of his prayer but it's so packed with meaning that we're going to take our time, as I've said before. These two verses here are the the sort of um, the end of his prayer for himself. The, the, The next 20 verses of John chapter 17, the rest of the chapter is his prayer for us, for his people. And we'll, we'll take our time going through that as well, because it reveals to us what he wants for us and what it is that we should be doing in response to his work. But Right here, we have something that that Jesus says about himself that really can't be overstated. And what's interesting about these two verses together is in this line of his prayer, we find in verse four, him talking about his work on earth. That is his human lifetime. The the 33 approximately years that he spent um, working serving, living among his people in Israel. And then in verse five, he talks to the father about his glory in heaven. And he's really talking about his divine lifetime in some ways, his divine life with the father, which is very mysterious to us. We don't know very much about it other than what he says here in a few other places. So it breaks down pretty easily. Verse four, the work of Jesus on earth and verse five, the glory of Jesus in heaven. And that's how we'll take it. So it's really interesting that, that we sort of overhear Jesus talking in the same breath about both sides of his life, his humanity and his divinity. And this is just a glimpse of, of who he is and, and how he understands himself, how he understands his own life. But it's a glimpse with huge implications for us, as we will see now, I will say this, that the, the nature of Jesus, who he is, his identity, it's a, it's a field of theology that we could, we could dive really deeply into. And there's, it, gets, it gets very deep very quickly. We don't need to dive all the way into the theological fine print this morning. Um, at this church, we stand in, in the tradition of Christian teaching about who Jesus is, and I'll just let you know, this is in your notes as well, that at a, at a place called Chalcedon, um, there was a council in the year 451 AD. That's 1,572 years ago. And this council more or less settled the question of, uh, of the fact that Jesus is one person with two natures. And if you want to, go read the statement that, of the, the council of Chalcedon. Um, you should know, here's, here's the takeaway before we're done with this part, but you should know that theologians consider this to be 
high mystery and a delicate balance at the same time. That it takes us right to the very edge of understanding the triune nature of God. When we talk about who Jesus is in his humanity and in his deity, it takes us to the very edge of what we can comprehend, which isn't very much. There's much more to be said that we wouldn't even understand. It's a high mystery, but it's also a delicate balance. If we've learned anything about the history of, of theology and doctrine about who Jesus Christ is in the past, it's that we cannot exaggerate in either direction, his humanity, which is very real, or his divinity, which is equally real and equally important. If we exaggerate, and this has happened multiple times throughout the history of the church, if you exaggerate in one direction or the other, if you don't hold those two natures of Jesus in tension the way they're supposed to be, you get heresy, and that's happened a lot. So this is very important, um, but that's all I'll say about the, the theology. We can talk more about that later if you want. Let's get into what Jesus says here. First of all, his work, the work of Jesus on earth. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Think about if you were to say that to God. Think about if you were to say, stand before the Lord and say, I did everything you wanted. We would call that boasting, wouldn't we? Can you say that Jesus is boasting to the Father when he says, I accomplished the work that you gave me to do? I think so. I think he's boasting. He's not being boastful. It's not, not, not that his heart is arrogant. He's just stating the fact that he's done everything that God wanted him to do. There's no swagger in his voice here, but he really is the only man who has a right to boast about his life before the Father. Amen? And this is what he says, I accomplished the work. I accomplished the work. The, another way of saying this is I reached the goal. I've done it. He says, I did it perfectly. That's another way to interpret this. Or I did not miss or ignore anything that you wanted me to do. There's two other ways of understanding this statement, I accomplished the work. And they should sound familiar to you from, from the gospel accounts. One is, I did your will on earth as it is in heaven. It's one of the lines out of the Lord's Prayer. I have done your will on earth as it is in heaven. I accomplished the work. And how about this? It is finished. Okay? It is finished. He said that on the cross. And we're going to look at that a little bit more too. So what is the work though? What is the work of Jesus? What is it that he has accomplished? And what, is it, what does it mean for us? Let's not miss anything that Jesus means here. There are three parts, at least three main parts to Christ's labor here on earth. When he was here, when he was here in the flesh. And those, those three things are his ministry his righteousness, and his cross. This was his life's work. First, his ministry. These are more or less three years that he spent between his baptism and his crucifixion, and he was working in Israel. He was working in Israel. That's his ministry. It was only three years long, which isn't a long time, except if you're working tirelessly night and day for your people, which he was serving, healing, teaching. There's three, three main components of his, of his career. You might think of it as his career. We say ministry, you could think of it as a career. His three years, 
in Israel, and he healed. These are the components of his career. He healed, he taught, and he made disciples. It says in, in John 1, this is the prologue to the book of John. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And so I want you to, I want you to think about first that in his healing, Jesus revealed the grace of God. He revealed the grace of God. In Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. And then in Luke 4, that, that's what it says about God. That's the, that's the whole tone of the Old Testament. The tone of the Old Testament is that, is that God is just, that he's also merciful, that he won't overlook sin, but that he also takes care of those who are poor and needy and downtrodden. In Luke 4, there was a moment. It's actually, if you, if you look at, at Luke 4, right after his temptation, there's a, in the ESV, there's a heading there, a section heading that says, Jesus begins his ministry. And this is how it, this is how it began. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But do you hear the kinds of things that Jesus was sent to do to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set people free, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was the sort of thing that he was here to do. But also his teaching, his teaching was a major part of his work during his ministry. And in his teaching, he revealed the truth of God. So he revealed the grace of God in his healing. He revealed the truth of God in his teaching says in John 8, 32, he's talking to his disciples and he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus never stopped saying what people needed to hear, did he? He didn't pull his punches. He helped. He met physical needs. He was extremely and unfailingly gracious when people came to him and said, Lord, my daughter is dying. Or, Lord, he, he asked the blind man, Bartimaeus, what do you want? He said, Lord, I want to see again. And he healed him. He did that, but on the other hand, he also spent a large part of his ministry telling people things they didn't want to hear about themselves. And that was part of it, true, and he, it too. And he revealed the truth of God in that way. Then the third thing, the third component of his career is that he made disciples. You remember the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been 
given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to to obey everything that I've commanded you. In his discipling, when he was doing this, he was handing off his work to his disciples. Three years, not a lot of time for one man to meet a lot of needs, a world full of needs. But in making disciples, he multiplied his work and he gave it to other people who would stay behind and continue it when he left. And so that was a major part of his work. And that's what we call discipleship. And when we disciple people, you hear me talking about discipleship here at Emmanuel. We're training people not just to receive the grace and the truth of God, not just to receive it, but to become a conduit of that grace and truth to to your neighbors and the community of Fallbrook and to the world. That's why the discipleship, the disciples that he made, that was a core part of his work and his time on earth. So that's his ministry. That's, That's one of the things that he could say to the father, I did that. I did it. I finished it. He could say that. But another thing that he could say that about is his, his righteousness, his perfection. This is one of my very favorite themes to, to think about, to pray about, to preach about. It's one of my favorite things. Because not only during his ministry, not only during that three-year period, but for his entire life. You know, you realize we're not told very much about the first 30 years of his life, are we? Not very much, but what we are told is that he didn't do what? He didn't sin. So for 30 years until, until the publicity kicks in, he was living a perfect and a sinless and a quiet life as a carpenter in Galilee. And that's what he did. No sin his whole life. Amazing. Amazing, especially when you consider the sorts of things that he defined as sin in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it's not only, it's not only murder that counts as murder. Anger also counts as murder. He taught us for everything that the law says not to do outwardly, there's an inward, there's a corresponding inward sin such that you could be totally self-controlled outwardly but be full of sin inside. Like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. When you think about that, when you think about how much of our sinful life takes place inside of us, in our desires, in our idolatry, in our thought life towards the people around us, folks, just driving, just driving down the road. Jesus didn't have any of it. He had none of it. No sin. Not at all. Not out. Not in. He kept the law perfectly and he lived a single brilliant life of holiness. And that, that should amaze us and that should delight us because this was, anything, this was unlike anything else that's ever been done and unlike any life that's ever been lived. It says in 1 Peter, and remember Peter was a man who loved Jesus and he watched him closely. We know he watched him closely because when, when Jesus said, who do you think I am? Remember what he said? You've got to be him. I've watched you. You've got to be the Christ. You have to be. And he said, blessed are you. 
for recognizing that. Peter watched Jesus closely, and he knew him well. And he writes in 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23, Peter writes that Jesus committed no sin. Part of what that means is that Jesus, who was with him night and or Peter, who was with him night, night and day for three years, did not see Jesus sin. That's part of what it means. It says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's impossible, it's impossible to overstate the importance of this, of Jesus's perfectly holy, sinless, innocent life. It's impossible to overstate it. In Leviticus 11, 44, in the law, as God was giving the law to Israel, it says, be holy for I am holy. And then Jesus, sounding a lot like that in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's referring to that verse in Leviticus. So how's that working out? How's that working out for you? You'd be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. The idea is that the only life that God will accept, the only life that God will accept is totally sinless, perfect in every way, flawless, like a diamond. You understand? Jesus lived that life. And it was his work in this world to live as you and I never could. A life so good that God in his holiness would look at it and say, I'm happy with that. That life makes me happy. That was Jesus' work according to his righteousness. And finally, his cross. We can't talk about the work of Jesus without talking about the cross. And here's why. People talk about Jesus like he was merely a good teacher. He was a good example for us to follow, right? You've heard that. Jesus is a good example. and, And it's by following his example that we can, we too can live lives that are pleasing to God. Does that sound right? That's not the teaching. That's not the message here. That's not the gospel. If you think about this, though, if Jesus at this moment, having served his people um, faithfully, served his people and worked hard and tirelessly to serve his people, and after living a sinless life, if he had returned to heaven at this moment, after that life, he would have been merely a good example for us, right? That's all he would be to us. He could have come and lived a perfect life and then just skipped the cross, gone back to heaven. What good would that do us? You'd still be left in your sins. You'd still be left to your own devices. You would still be left trying trying to live up to his example. You can never do it. You can never do it. So how is that perfect life good news for us? How is it given? How is it given? to you and me? How do, we, how do we take hold of that perfect life as our own, as our own life? He had to trade places with us. Do you see how his work all holds together? He lived a perfect life so that he could lay down that life for us on the cross. 
And here's why it has to be the cross. We have to see Jesus bleeding for us. We have to understand that he bled because we're sinful. In Hebrews 9, 22, we learn, we learn that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And if you read the Old Testament law, you only have to read a couple pages of it to understand that God accepts the lifeblood of a sacrifice as payment for someone else's sins. That's what those sacrifices were all about. And they shed the blood of a goat or a lamb or a bull to make atonement for their sins. And God would look at that and he would say, I accept that. I accept that lifeblood. Offering his innocent blood for us on the cross. It was the pinnacle and it was the meaning. It was the capstone of his work here on earth. The cross was the moment when all of his work was tied together and handed to you and me. His work on the cross. Now, what's interesting is, what's interesting is that he's saying, I accomplished the work that you gave me to do before the cross. How could he say that? Because if the most important part of his work hadn't happened yet, how is it he could say that? Well, all that means is that he was so determined to go to the cross that he could talk about it like it had already happened. That's how set on the cross Jesus was in his heart. He wasn't trying to get out of it. It was the whole point of his life and he was ready to do it for you and me. And so he says, I accomplished it, I finished it. So here's the idea, because he starts by saying, I glorified you on earth. Do you see that in verse four? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work of Jesus was to come to earth and carry out God's will to save us. And that's how he shows us the Father's glory. This is your fill in the blank there on your second page of your notes. If you're following along, Jesus lived and served his people without a single sin or failure. And then he offered that life up for you and me on the cross. That was his work, and his work is finished. His work is finished. What this means is that there's, there's nothing to add. There's nothing to add to that life that he lived, that perfect life that is handed to us. There's, you can't add anything to that. What are you gonna add? to the righteousness of Jesus? What are you gonna add to the life that he lived? There is no other work of this kind to be done, okay? There's nothing else you can do to be saved. Remember the the rich young ruler came to Jesus? Remember what he asked him? He was asking the wrong question. Maybe it was the right question, but it revealed what was wrong in his heart. He says, teacher, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember that? And how many of us, even after we've put our faith in Jesus, even after we've trusted him to save us from our sins, to make us right with God, how many of us still act like, what must I do to be saved? Nothing. You can't. There's nothing you can add to that. It happens by faith. He came to save the world and he did it. And that didn't involve you. You weren't born yet, but he did it. Now, here's the thing. There is still plenty for us to do, but all of our work is in response to what Jesus has done. Do you get that? 
It's in response to the message of the gospel. It's not to make ourselves right with God. It's in response to the fact that we have already been made right with God by the blood of Jesus. That's the idea. So our work, our work, if, if you put your faith in Jesus, the work is to take the message of what Jesus has done and apply it to anyone who will listen. That's the work. And that's called making disciples. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus was doing. Now, before we move on to the second section, I want to talk to you briefly about the, the good news of work, the sort of the big biblical story of work. Remember in Genesis 3? By the way, have you noticed how often I go to Genesis 3 when I'm preaching? It's because this is a story, folks. We're not just learning synthetic categories of information. This is a story that you're a part of, okay? The story begins in the garden. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, he, he cursed three people. Do you remember who they were? The only three are in the story. Do you remember? Yeah, the snake, the serpent. To the serpent, he said his curse was a, a son of Eve will crush your head. To the woman, he talked to the woman next. He said, you will bear children in great pain. And by the way, that's, that's not just talking about physical pain. How many of you moms have ever stayed up late at night worried about what kind of mischief your, your son or your daughter's getting into? That's pain. That's pain as a parent. All cut because sin came into the world. You know what would happen with Eve? She would watch one of her, her sons kill the other one. You think that's pain in childbearing? Yeah. So it wasn't pure joy anymore to be a mother. Your, 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 your pain in bearing children will be great. And then he turns to the man and God cursed his work. That's what God cursed specifically. Remember? He said, your work rough translation, your work is going to be crushing and meaningless. He says this to Adam, you will have to break your back just to survive. But no matter how hard you work, you're still going to die. That's what God said to Adam because of his sin. The idea is that work was cursed as a result of sin. And we all feel it, don't we? How many of us have had bad days at work? I don't want to be here, but I have no choice. That's, some of us have entire careers where that's just the overall feeling. I don't want to be here, but I have no choice. We all, we all have those days. By the way, I think my work is just about as good as it gets, but I don't, I don't have very many days like that. I want to talk to you about a man named Studs Terkel. Does that name ring any bells? The, the gray, gray-haired folks are more likely to know that name. Stud Sterkle. You know it? Anyone? No? He was a journalist. I'm the only journalist in this room, so I, I know the name. He was, he was referred to as the man who interviewed America. He just was always interviewing people, talking to... He loved... One of the things he loved to do, that I love to do, is just interview normal people. He, you know, people always think, oh, journalists, they go and they interview celebrities or they interview politicians, they interview athletes. And yeah, that's a large part of the, the job. But Studs Terkel would go and talk to ordinary people about their ordinary lives. And in 1974, he released a book, he published a book entitled Working. And it was a bestseller. 
And I have a copy because I found it at the used bookstore and I wasn't even looking for it. I just came across and I thought, oh, that's interesting. The subtitle is, it's working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. Fascinating, actually, very fascinating because so much of our lives are spent at work. Let me read you, this is from his introduction. In his introduction to the book, he shares the one big theme the one big takeaway of all of the laborers that he talked to in his travels through this country, and that was their discontentment. Let me read to you from his introduction. He said, I'm a machine, says the spot welder. I'm caged, says the bank teller, and echoes the hotel clerk. I'm a mule, says the steel worker. A monkey can do what I do, says the receptionist. I'm less than a farm implement, says the migrant worker. I'm an object, says the high fashion model. Blue collar and white collar use the same phrase, I'm a robot. And then Turkle, who, who was, he was agnostic to his deathbed, he said this, work is a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than boredom. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Perhaps immortality too is part of the quest. To be remembered was the wish spoken and unspoken of the heroes and heroines of this book. In other words, when he interviewed workers all over the US, he was hearing about the curse. Do you see it? They were telling him about their own experience of work being cursed. This is what the sweat of your brow means. God told Adam, you'll, you'll, you'll bear fruit through the sweat of your brow. It will feel like this. Work does not satisfy our souls the way we think it should. Instead, it, dra- it drains the life out of us. And at its worst, it, 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 it makes us feel like we're not even human. It's dehumanizing. Jesus knew that curse better than anyone. He knew that what it was like to labor day in and day out without recognition, to be wanted just because of what he could provide, what he could give to people, not for who he was, but for what he could provide. He knew this was part of his work. In the beginning, God cursed the serpent. He cursed Eve and he cursed Adam. And here we have Jesus, the promised son of Eve, doing the brutal and thankless work that God gave him to do as a son of Adam. And his work was to crush the serpent's head. Jesus came into a cursed world and he worked himself to death for us. That was his life's work. And it has everything, everything to do with you and me because now our work can be meaningful. It doesn't have to be meaningless. When your work is situated in the story of what Jesus has done, you get your daily bread and you get your daily meaning. Jesus took the curse so that you and I can work as people were meant to in fellowship with the God who made us. And Jesus dignifies human work by doing the one thing that we couldn't do for ourselves and doing it as one of us. Let's look at the glory of Jesus in heaven now, his deity, his divinity. Verse five, 
what he asks for himself. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In case you missed that last line, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So on the basis of his accomplishments, he says, I have accomplished the work. I've finished it. I've done it. I did everything you wanted. I did your will right here on earth like it's done in heaven. On the basis of that work, Jesus asks for one last thing for himself. And the rest of his prayer is for us. But he asks for this one thing for himself. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And you should, when you hear that, you should stop and think, what? Before the world existed? Yes, this is... He's talking crazy, isn't he? You're not the only one to think so, if that's how you hear it. Jesus, first of all, let's point out that Jesus is not asking for something new. Because in verse 1, he asks to be glorified. He says, glorify your son that the, that the son may glorify you. He's not asking for something new. He's not asking to become God. He's asking to be restored to what he previously enjoyed before he became a man in our world. Do you see that? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, here's the thing. Did God answer this prayer? Do you think so? Did he answer it? Acts 1, verse 9, it says, And when, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took Jesus out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. This is called his ascension because he ascended into heaven in plain sight, by the way. And I think... I'm not the only one. I think that the ascension is, is a commonly overlooked part of the story of Jesus. But it is the answer to this prayer. And do you see, do you see how it's the answer? He's asked to be received back to his former glory with the Father. And right there in the narrative of Acts 1, it happens. It happens before their eyes. So after dying on the cross, after coming back to life, Jesus resumed his place beside the Father right where he wanted to be. That's why I entitled this message the status that Jesus wants. This is, this is where he wants to be. This is his place. This is where he belongs. Because he's not just a man. He's also God. So let's look a little more closely at what he's really saying here. Let's see. I mean, this is, understand that this is the mystery this is the mystery of his incarnation that we're dealing with. We're not going to get to the bottom of it, but let's see if we can get a little bit closer to understanding at least what this means for us. Now, to C.S. Lewis, this is one of the two most outrageous things that Jesus ever said. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's, a, it's an explicit claim to have preexisted not only humanity, but the entire material universe. That's what he's saying. It's a claim that before there was a world, before there was a sun, before there were stars or people or animals or plants, there was God and he was there because he's God. 
That's what he's saying. And what Jesus says here, it requires us to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible and to understand that when God says, let us make man in our own image, that was the father talking to this person, to Jesus, to the son. That's what was happening there. That's why he says, let us make man in our own image. The father was saying that to the son and they did it. So this is, this is a request and it is, it's outrageous. If, if it wasn't true, it would be outrageous. This is a request by the flesh and blood man named Jesus to be reinstated in the fullness of that prehistoric relationship. So in, in mere Christianity, Lewis says that the, these two outrageous claims that Jesus makes over and over are that he could forgive sins. Because he says, imagine that if someone, if someone wronged you and some other person came up to your, to your situation and said, oh, that's okay, I forgive you. I forgive the person who committed the sin. What would you say? Get out of here. This isn't any of your business, right? If Jesus couldn't forgive sin, he had no business saying that he could because it would be just like that. It would be, what, this isn't any of your business unless, unless you're God. And then it has everything to do with you and you can forgive it if you want to. The second thing was this claim that, that Jesus had, Jesus always saying that he always existed. He never claimed otherwise. He never said a single thing that would indicate that he thought of himself as a mere human being who didn't exist before he was born in Bethlehem. He never said anything that would lead to that conclusion. So he was always saying that he could forgive sins and that he's always existed. And then Lewis says, because of these claims, the one thing you can't say of Jesus is that he was merely a good teacher or an exemplary person, a good example for us to follow. It doesn't work. It doesn't answer that these claims that Jesus makes. Now, this is the way that most people will talk about Jesus especially if they know they're talking to a Christian. I don't want to just say that Jesus doesn't exist. So I'll say this. I'll acknowledge his wisdom and his humility. He was a great teacher. He was a great example for mankind, but I'm not going to worship him. I'm not going to do that. That would be crazy. I'll see us, Lewis, and I'll read to you from mere Christianity. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would be crazy. He would be a madman, a lunatic. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is saying that you can't reduce Jesus to a mere teacher or any kind of mere mortal without ignoring who he himself claimed to be. In his lifetime, this is one of the proofs, this is one of the proofs of who he claimed to be is the fact that in his lifetime, Jesus never produced a mild reaction anywhere he went. Have you noticed that? They either wanted to make him king or they wanted to kill him. It's either a riot or there was a revival. 
Like this is what happened when Jesus opened his mouth. He wasn't making modest claims for himself. He was making the biggest claims that any human being could make. And they heard him because half of them, or probably less than half, thought he's the one that we've been waiting for and I will follow him. And everyone else said, he can't say that. He's not allowed to talk like that. that it, read, read the gospels. That's what happened everywhere he went. And that's what Lewis says too, that there were only ever three, three reactions. He identifies three reactions to Jesus and his teaching. And they were hatred and terror and adoration. Extremes, wild extremes. Not one ounce of mild approval. Now there's, an, there's another idea out there. I'll close, I'll wrap this up here in the next few minutes. But there's another idea out there that Christ's deity, that his divinity was something that was added to the Bible later. Have you ever heard that? That the historical Jesus never claimed to be God and that he wasn't God. He was a good man. He was a prophet maybe. But his, his divinity was added later. Well, you pretty much have to throw out the entire New Testament in order, to, in order to make that claim. Let me read you from Mark 14, verse 62. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read you a bunch of verses because you need, to see, you need to see how common this theme is in the New Testament. In Mark 14, 62, he was still in his unimpressive human Galilean body and Jesus was on trial when they asked him if, if he was the Christ. They said, straight up, tell us if you're the, if you're the blessed one. He's on trial, and in verse 62, he says, I am, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And they killed him for that. Now, there was a moment in Acts chapter 7. Remember the story of Stephen? Remember? He was preaching about Jesus. And it was having a great effect. And he was filled with the Spirit. And just before he was killed, it says that he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So yeah, Jesus' prayer that he would be restored to God's presence with the glory that he had always had, that prayer was answered. All of the writers of the New Testament were convinced of this fact about the reality of our universe, which is that Jesus Christ is enthroned at the right hand. That's the hand of power and privilege. He's at the right hand of the Father. Here we go, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Colossians 3, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8.1, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10.12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then 1 Peter 3. 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There are many more verses just like that. 
the, the apostles who wrote the New Testament, it's like they can never tell the story of Jesus without reminding us where he is now, and that is at God's right hand. So what does this mean for us? Let's bring it home, and then we're done. What does this mean for us? I really can't simplify it any more than to say that, that there is a man, there is a human being sharing the eternal glory of God in heaven. You feel it? One of us, one of us is on the throne of heaven enjoying the glory that existed before the world was even made. I think it's easy for us to believe that God is in heaven and that a man named Jesus died on the cross. I think that's okay. We can understand that. But it strains the limits of the human imagination to see that the God of heaven died on the cross and that a man named Jesus now holds the seat of all power in this universe. Because Jesus is a real man and is really God, both natures were present on the cross. And both natures are present with the Father in heaven right now. So God was on the cross. A man is on the throne. And none of us have fully grasped what that really means to us. If we did, I don't think we'd be able to contain it. Jesus brought heaven down to earth so that he could bring his people up with him all the way into the presence of God. Let's pray.